0: you're listening to the hockey podcast network new shows every day find us at the hockey podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from
1: Welcome to the San Jose Hockey Now podcast, your trusted source for all things San Jose Sharks on the Hockey Podcast Network. My name is Nick Floor. Shang's a little busy right now, and this episode's a little bit exclusive, a little bit unique in the sense that it's an interview only. We have another episode getting released later this week, but we had the opportunity to sit down and talk shop. With David Alexander Beauregard, a.k.a. One-Eyed Willie, former Danbury Trasher, and former San Jose Sharks draft pick. You'll learn about that in the interview. Uh, but I just wanted to let you guys know prior to this interview, we will have another episode dropping later this week. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, but the interview with David was so great. It was so long that we had to dedicate an entire episode release to it. So enough chit chatting from me. Let's just hop directly into that interview with David. And joining us on the pod today is an incredibly special guest who, you know, maybe two months ago, most hockey fans may not have known. But due to a recent Netflix documentary, Untold Crime and Penalties, his popularity has skyrocketed and his story is being told all across the nation. We bring to you 1994 San Jose Sharks draft pick, and former Danbury trasher David Alexander Beauregard, A.K.A. One-Eyed Willie. David, thank you so much for joining us today on the pod. How's the morning going so far over there in Montreal? It's a sunny day, so uh, every Saturday morning it's a great day. So
0: uh, I'm happy to to be with you guys.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thank again you, for David. Out with us.
2: Yeah, thank you for uh, joining us and. Before we get to your time in Danbury, I wanted to add that you've had an incredible hockey career. You know, if you watch the, the Netflix uh, documentary, uh, everybody, uh, you know that uh, David's career almost ended when he was 18 in 1994 when he lost an eye because of a high stick. But he persevered from that, scoring over 500 goals on more than 25 teams uh, in a 20 year career. And when you retired in 2013, David, uh, Sports Illustrated nominated uh, nominated you as their Sportsman of the Year.
0: Yeah, I remember that. That was funny because I was all against the uh, all the big names in the world like uh, Usain Bolt, uh, <laughs> Hayden Manning, yep. Aaron Williams, uh, uh, Floyd Mayweather, and all the – it was me. A no-name a known guy
1: from uh Canada. <laughs> Let's take it back a little bit. When I say back, I mean way back to when you got drafted by the San Jose Sharks. I just wanted to start off by just kind of giving you a little tidbit about myself. You were drafted 3 months before I was even born, David. So <laughs> give us a uh, give us some some memories about that day. You know, tell us what it was like being drafted back then for the sharks
0: it was a really like a uh, special day you know like i was uh, especially <laughs> uh, in the 90s like all the small players were kind of um, uh, forget in every draft me i was really a skinny kid so i was a really good offensive player but I wasn't even in the draft uh, sheets. Mm. So in that day, I was in a um, in a Montreal Olympic Stadium watching the Montreal Expos against the Atlanta Braves in 1994. That, that was, was a good when, year for the Expos. <laughs> that was when the Expos were first and the. We were ready to go all the way that year, and <laughs> the strike happened. Right, right. So, um, so I remember, like, Cliff Floyd hit a three-run home run against uh, Greg Maddox, Wow! And the Expos won that game. And after that, that game, I went back home and I received a phone call from my brothers who were with my dad, and he said, "Hey, your agent is trying to call you. You just got drafted by the Sharks." And I really thought I was a, a joke back then. I said, "Come on." <laughs> And uh, now it was, uh, you know, I, I was um, I was a very very late pick, and um, and my English was was kind of really bad in 1994. So when the Sharks called me and they tried to explain to me that um, every. Every summer, they had like a summer camp in Brainerd, Minnesota for all the Sharks prospect and Mm -hmm. some of the uh, NHL top prospect. So they told me like uh, it was. If I remember correctly, so the Sharks called me like uh, in the same day I got drafted and they called me back two days later and they said, tomorrow you have to be in Brainerd, Minnesota for (laughs) two months. And uh, for me, I was completely lost when I got there. But it was a great experience, and uh, it's where everything started to shift off for me because I really shows uh, which kind of player I was on the ice. And right. it, it was a really, really positive uh, training camp for me.
2: Let's go back to uh, uh, draft day just a little bit. Uh, um, how small were you? You know, I think right now in your uh, in your pro playing career, you ended up about six foot one eighty, so a decent size. But when you were drafted, you know, I read that uh, when you're drafted uh, by the Q or in the Q, uh, QMJHL, you were about 150 pounds. So were you about that when the Sharks drafted? you? Yeah, I was
0: still very. I think I. Um, I entered that draft when I, uh, I was probably at uh, 155, wow. six foot 155, or 5'11, 155. Uh, so I was very, very like a skinny guy. And um, But uh, uh, when I, I was in Brainerd, Minnesota, we trained a lot. We were on the ice twice a day plus a mm-hmm. gym. Like uh, I think that was an hour and a half gym. Right, those two sessions on the ice. And I gained weight and I gained mm-hmm. muscles. And I was a fast skater before I got to Brainerd, but I became a really a rocket after Brainerd. <laughs> I have no idea why, but it was like a, a new weapon for me on the ice because I've always been a goal scorer. But yeah. now I score goals using way more my speed. And, right. it's, and it's how I, I started like... Uh... <laughs> to Really enjoying like uh, skating beside demons,
2: right? <laughs> and I wanted to mention too, um, you know, in the mid 90s, you know, a, a guy who's you know uh, about a little more over 100 150 pounds is gonna have a tough time in that NHL. You know, just uh, guys who were roaming the ice back then were guys like you know, Marty McSorley, Bob, Bob Probert, you know, just the the. Classic enforcers of the day, but uh, like you mentioned, uh, David, uh, you quickly joined the Sharks conditioning camp. I think that's what they what they called that, <laughs> their the rookie camp, yeah. and um, yeah, that was like a summer long camp for rookies and prospects in Minnesota, and. You were an 11th round pick. Uh, That was the last round of the 1994 draft. But you impressed so much in Minnesota that you were one of just three 1994 Sharks draft picks to get an invite to main camp uh, that September. Exactly. Uh, First round pick, pick Jeff Friesen. Second round pick, Angel uh, Nikolov. And you, uh, 11th round pick. You know, that's nine picks between you and Nikolov. You know, David, that's how good you were at the rookie camp. And I'm not sure if you know these guys were there too, but among the 1994 Sharks draft picks who had significant angel careers and didn't get an invite to the main camp uh vokov had a pretty good career in buffalo alexander Korolyuk uh had a nice career with the sharks and a little goalie name of getting the bokov yeah. so those are guys who didn't get the invite and you did uh but anyway my question is though uh what were some of your memories and you mentioned a few of them already but what were your, some of your memories about that rookie camp of, of hanging out with a future great shark like Jeff Friesen and any, anybody else at the camp?
0: It was – I have a lot of memories about that camp. First, um, the Sharks put like 12 uh, rookie prospects from all over the years in the same cabin because we were in the woods. <laughs> we have nothing else. We had like cabins everywhere yeah. for uh, Sharks players, NH- some NHL prospects, and some other camp. And so in our cabin we were twelve. We had uh and my English was kind of really bad, but we oh, had yeah. one guy was a French uh French guy from Ontario, so he helped me a lot. And um who was that? His name was Eric Landry. Oh, if sure, you sure, remember.
2: sure. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he was dropped in nineteen ninety four also.
0: Yeah, and um Eric Landry was there and he was helping me a lot, but uh, everyone were really nice to me. And um, we had a tennis court, basketball court. And our coach uh, was Kevin Constantine that nice. year, who really liked to play basketball. And me, I was playing against him. That was like uh, very often, that was like uh, three players, uh, three players against three coaches. And uh, Kevin Constantine was playing every time. And because I had long arms, I was, I was all over him every single match. <laughs> and he was kind of, uh, he wasn't mad, but he was getting frustrated and stuff. So one day, he called me in his office. Uh, I think that was probably after the first month. He called me in the office and he told me oh, uh, I impressed him a lot. And he asked me one question, and I remember that. Which player in the NHL you think, like, you – I had, like, the the same kind of players. Sure, style or whatever, right? Yeah. And me, right away, I thought of uh, Luke Robitaille because he Mm -hmm. was a a late pick, goal scorer, but Mm -hmm. I was faster on the ice. Yeah. So I I said, Luke Robitaille. And he told me, he said, yeah, but you know what? He said, I really, really, like, uh, look at you on the eyes. And he said, you could be my Bob <laughs> and me That's a multiple age, Selkie winner there. <laughs> exactly. But me, at this age, what I like the most when I play hockey is scoring goals. So he said, no, I really see you uh, skating against all the great skaters in the league. Uh, you you could be my, like, uh, top like a PK guy, because he said, because he was like, uh, he was saying yeah, on the basketball court, like you read the play really well and you're, you're always. Uh, so, so me, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, no, no, uh, I want to score goals. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that because I, I knew, like, uh, I couldn't say that, but in my head, no, I want to keep scoring <laughs> goals. I don't want just to defend. <laughs> it's what I like but yeah I remember that and um, uh, in the real camp uh, uh, if I remember I was one in the last cut and he told me you go back one year junior and next year uh, we will try to make room for you right. so uh, so I went back junior and I had like a 14 goals in my first 12 games. Yep. And I scored my 15th when my accident happened. Right. So, uh, on the same play.
2: Right, right. And I wanted to just uh, uh, jump back a little bit. the Sharks' uh, rookie camp, that summer-long thing, that's definitely not allowed in the CBA anymore. So the <laughs> the the, the mid '90s were a very very uh, different time. Oh, but, I didn't uh, know
0: that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, not
2: not anymore. Back then, it was fine. But like, yeah, yeah. you know, if you're drafted now, there's no way that you're going to to a rookie camp for two months in Minnesota in a cabin with no Wi-Fi or whatever, <laughs> no, <laughs> and playing playing no basketball, pick-up basketball with your head coach. So. We had one Genesis in our uh, <laughs> that's old. <laughs>
0: yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, sure.
2: Yeah, Sega Genesis Sonic the yeah, We Hedgehog. had
0: one Genesis and uh, some cards game and that's it.
2: Wow, 12, 12 guys and one Sega Genesis. That is not a, a recipe for for a uh, uh well, uh you know, I'm sure the summer was so
0: fun, but <laughs> and sometime every single evening I remember I just asked uh, guy. If it was okay, if I could watch ESPN for 20 minutes just to see if the Montreal Expos kept winning every (laughs) single. I'm a huge baseball fan, and yeah, 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 yeah. Expos like uh, fans, and I was asking them, "Can I please just ESPN just to see?" And yeah, and the Montreal Expos were like uh, six games ahead of the the Braves that year. They were the best Mm -hmm. team in the MLB, and yeah, so and the strikes. And the strike happens.
2: While yeah, I, was... I I gotta ask you. Uh, uh how? Uh, what what uh, Genesis games did, did you guys have? Like again, I'm just <laughs> I can't picturing twelve guys and like, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog. What altered beast? Joe Montana football? Maybe.
0: I don't... <laughs> no, we played all the time. The NHL '93, I believe.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, that just came out. Right, right, right.
0: When the two best players in the game was Jerry Mironik and Steve Iserman.
2: Yep. Yep. You yep. were the two best ones in the game.
0: <laughs> did you? Did you guys make Retzky bleed? <laughs> I don't remember that one. I think like the, the players were uh, started to bleed in NHL '95. I believe. Oh.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: <laughs> you know, I might not be. You know, I'm young, but I did play on the Sega Genesis, so I do understand what you guys are talking about. That was an amazing <laughs> console. I still think the 64, the Nintendo 64, kind of revolutionized how it went. But we're going to talk hockey. We're not yeah. talking video games today. And we <laughs> had four
0: controllers.
1: Four oh, that's controllers. Funny. <laughs> that's funny. You mentioned that I was actually going to ask if you had four controllers available for everybody there. So it's it's good to know that at least a third of the guys were able to play. <laughs> at least once so that's funny. so you you talked a little bit about you know scoring 14 goals in your first 12 games uh you know when you got reassigned back to the queue um the eye injury happens I just wanted to make another quick note is you you scored on that play you know your eyes yeah. shut. amazing you just, yeah, you,
0: you yeah still I didn't score. know yeah
1: I don't even know how or but
0: I just remembered like I was in a breakaway in a second period and the the, the guy was uh, behind me and he tried to reach my stick and he missed my stick and his stick went under my visor because every players were wearing a three-quarter visor. It's a visor who goes under the nose and his blade went just under my visor, hit my eye and I kept skating and I scored and after that I fell in a corner and I thought I really thought I couldn't see cuz of the swelling and it, it's it's when I um I grabbed my lid I couldn't see again. I had no idea that I just scored and yeah. uh, cuz I was just like more uh, I knew my my eye was uh, seriously injured and I uh, I was just talk like thinking about that and when my trainer came right away I told him it was over. It took probably uh, five seconds be- before I really real- realized it was just just the, the swelling. That was like I was in uh, my eye was in big trouble, and uh, it just in the hospital that the doctor told me that uh, it was over. My my eye was done.
1: Amazingly, you you came back from that. You know, you you persevered. You were a forty goal scorer in the queue next year, despite being blind in one eye. You know. You hear about a bunch of different stories of people persevering. This takes a whole different type of mental toughness to not sit there and, you know, feel down on yourself or feel sorry for yourself and kind of go into a shell after the incident, you know, despite the NHL rule that you can't play unless you're above a certain vision threshold in both eyes essentially, but instead you, you decided to attack your dream of continuing to be a great hockey player and goals like you did so. Did you always have that kind of mindset throughout your entire upbringing? You know, like just to always attack ferociously on what you want to do regardless?
0: When I was young, I think that was my first time that I was in that position of uh, be really positive. Um, I think it was the main reason why I had that hockey career because I accepted my injury right away. And And when I accepted it, uh, I, was far to, I was far to think that uh, I would have a hockey, a pro hockey career. Um, I remember when I woke up right in the next morning after my surgery, my mom was there and she was crying. And, uh, and I remember that I told her that, uh, hey, you know, uh, I could cry, I could yell, I could be mad, but uh, I will never find a rewind button to go back where that accident happened so i really accept my my uh my accident and said you know what like it's gonna be my life now so i'm gonna try my best to i don't know you know and 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 back then i really thought my hockey career was done i knew i would probably play hockey again with my friends or in some uh beer league somewhere but i never thought about like uh, making a comeback in uh, but first in junior and second uh, having a pro career. Do you
2: know what gave you that kind of that stoicism, that attitude? You know, right after the accident, to just take it so calmly. I mean, that's remarkable for an eighteen-year-old. I mean, I can't imagine what I would have been like if that happened to me and I was eighteen.
0: No, do you know what? Like uh, I'm just. Uh... You know, like I'm a normal guy. I just I'm really happy that I I acted like the, the like the way I did because because everything after that was so much easier to um, deal with. And yeah. uh, you know, like for, and and I learned a lot from that incident. And now in in my life, I just try to see. Uh, Every bad thing in a positive way and and try to make um, every problem, find a solutions for every problems I face. and uh, But no, like, um, I have no idea where uh, I got that, but I'm happy that I did.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I read too that when you try to come back, even the great Rocket Richard try to talk you out of coming back and playing with one eye what did he say to you and just how crazy was that you know the greatest canadians player canadian player ever telling you you know a guy who grew up a canadians fan to you know give up your dream kind of. i mean that must have just been kind of uh crazy surreal
0: especially back then here in montreal my accident happened while the strike the nhl strike was on mm so what happened right. is uh, you know like in montreal hockey it's like a religion like right. everybody just it's it's hockey everywhere and the montreal canadians everywhere and and of course my ex my my accident was a really big hockey accident it was a big injury for any hockey players mm-hmm. so i was in the news everyday newspaper and uh, yeah. when i when I started to uh, skate again with my teammates in my junior team, I was probably the worst player out there. I was right. hitting boards because I couldn't see the how far was the board. I was receiving passes, and I really thought it, uh, the puck was on my blade, and it was like uh, not even close. But I was getting better and better and better every time I jumped on the ice. And um in one point, probably after three weeks or a month, I was getting, because my talent was there, you know, my stick and link was there, my mm-hmm. skating was there, but everything else I had to learn about, like, because I couldn't see on my left side. So right. I had to readjust everything, but more you're on the ice, more you practice, better you get. And, uh, and, and after one month, I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe I could try to make a comeback. So why not? Because I was getting, like, uh, more comfortable on the ice. But practices, it's not like a game, like, especially my teammates. My teammates never really hit me because, you know, it, it, it's normal. And yeah. after two months, uh, I really thought I was ready. So I asked my team, hey, is it possible to – maybe I try to make a comeback. But they didn't have any rules yet in that ju- – uh, in a junior, that made right. me they, okay. So they had to do a lot of uh, meetings and uh, and stuff. And finally, they decided that it was my um, my choice. So I told the I told the newspaper that I want to make a comeback. So it makes a lot uh, a big like uh, big storm in all the newspaper, all sure. the uh, TV shows. Um, and and after in the newspaper, a lot of persons gave their opinion about in my choice, and one is Maurice Richard. Do you know the way that the newspaper said it?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It makes uh, Maurice uh, looks mean or a bad guy because he, he said... If that, thing, yeah, if that kid thinks that he can make a comeback with one eye in a really fast sports he's like he's, uh, he doesn't think right. Mm-hmm. And, but <laughs> in the same time, I'm pretty sure he wanted to protect me. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because I was young and, you know, like uh, it's not everyone I can say, oh, do you know what? I'm going to go play. Let's go. But I can't see on my left side. So it's normal. You know, like uh, every people were scared for me. And I was too, but and he had probably like uh, in everywhere in all the media papers and stuff. Ninety-five percent of the person were telling me to not to do it, mm-hmm. and five percent were telling me to do it. But it was all my close friends or family. He said, "It's your life. Go for it." Mm-hmm. And uh, same me. I had no idea was I was like uh, going to because uh, playing a real game with uh with it's it's not like just practicing with your teammates
1: right right of course so yeah, practice practices practice is never gain <clears throat> speed so i'm sure it was a little in, intimidating in its own sense doing that but you know going back and watching and reading interviews with you about that you never seemed bitter or really hung up on the fact of what could have been and, and that goes back to like that mindset that you had uh of you know just not being down on yourself and really attacking the now and not worrying about hitting a rewind button because it doesn't exist. So you mentioned Luke Robitaille a little bit. Do you think you could have really modeled your game after him in the NHL playing along the side, you know, the likes of, you know, Igor Lorianov and Owen Nolan for the Sharks? You know what? It's a question that I cannot answer. Like, uh, (laughs) you know,
0: like uh, I know, like many people said that uh, my place was with the Sharks almost for sure. But, you know, after that accident happened, like we'll never know. But yeah. in my mind, I was ready. I was ready to score more goals, especially with the Sharks. But uh, it didn't happen, so it's fine. You know, like um, I felt privileged that I still had, I still played, like uh, for many years. Uh, my passion was playing hockey, and same when I uh, I stopped playing at the. Th- 37, every single morning, I just love walking up and go to the Mm -hmm. rink and meet my teammates and skate on the ice. It was a passion all my years.
2: Well, maybe it's a good thing you didn't make the Sharks anyway, because uh, Kevin Constantine would have made you stop scoring goals and made you play defense. So <laughs> anyway, you uh, played uh, five games also. Eventually, uh, a couple years later, you played five games with San Jose's AHL affiliate in Kentucky. And how come you didn't play more games with them? Because you played uh, just five games. You had three assists. And I think you were in Kentucky for a couple <laughs> months there. And yep. so, yeah. So how come you didn't play more? And also, too, do you have any just memories of that time? You played with multiple sharks like uh, Wade Flaherty and Ray Ray Whitney. I'm not sure if they were there exactly when you were there, but they were there that season.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Jim Wiley was the head coach uh, for the Kentucky, and
2: um, it became Sharks' coach too.
0: And he invited me at twenty because uh, I went to the Sharks' camp in 1994. After my injury, uh, I skipped the camp 95, 96. They invited me when I when I was 20 years old. I think they were just by respect or just mm. so they invited me. I had a great camp, so. But I couldn't sign an NHL contract. So I was there right. just to skate with the pros. And um, so they sent me to the uh, American Hockey League camp with the Kentucky Thoroughblades, and the head coach with Jim Wiley. And that team were affiliated with the Sharks and the and mm-hmm. Islanders. Mm-hmm. And me, I was the only one without an NHL contracts all oh, the other players okay. that makes were sense. on the two ways and how that and at first when the season started we were just like a 20 players so so i had a spot in the roster so i played the first five games and uh after that the players were were sending down from islanders and the sharks and uh, it was normal it's business uh all the players with contracts uh, were playing before me and um, it's part of the NHL business, so I was there. I, I, I was practicing every single. I was traveling with them, and uh, Jim Wiley met me two months after, and he said, "You know, it's not you. I had to. I had to play the players with contracts. So, so what do you want to do? Do you want to keep uh, stay with us, keep practicing, and uh, hoping some called up or hoping like an opening, or you want to go back junior?" with your junior team. And I decided I was too young to not play. So I decided to go back, uh, uh, junior for my last year.
1: Do you have any other, uh, any memorable moments of your time in the San Jose Sharks organization or the things you're not allowed to tell us? Are there stories that we can't know about?
0: (laughs) No, do you know what? Like, uh, the, it it was a long time ago, but, uh, just being like just being on the ice with all the NHLers was was kind of a dream come true. Uh, the first year we had uh, Pat Falloon, Whitney, mm-hmm. uh, Sendis Ozolinch was there, uh, Artus Irbe mm-hmm. was there. He had that uh, Russian line with Larionov, Garpenlov, and, and Makarov. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they were all there too and um and my second training camp uh I had Marty McSorty as a roommate at the hotel <laughs> really uh, yeah he was a great guy awesome guy i felt kind of bad cuz he, he was always asking me is the TV too loud is yeah, i like, yeah. okay and i hey you can do whatever you want marty i'm the <laughs> I'm the young kid here. just just do whatever you want <laughs> i won't tell you to i won't tell you anything just No, but uh, it was all fun, and especially, like, uh, I was doing really, really, really well, because no one expected me to doing that good, and I I impressed a lot, and it it, it was fun, and I really, and back then, I really saw, like, uh, for the first time, that I was probably the caliber of
1: an NHLer. Mm. Wow. Hey folks, we just wanted to take a quick break to thank this week's sponsor, DraftKings Sportsbook. Week 2 of football is in the books and now it's time to review the tape and get ready for Week 3 with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. Listen up because you don't want to miss this. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $100 on any Week 3 game to receive $150 in free bets instantly. If Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN to receive $150 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code THPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, a minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required one per customer restrictions apply see draftkings.com slash sportsbook for details gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana 1-800-9-WITH-IT and now back to the interview with David Beauregard
2: and you know uh hate to do this uh but uh you know we could talk to you forever but want to skip ahead so you know a decade later uh, you're killing it as usual in the, the minor league hockey scoring goals. Like I said, you scored over 500 uh, over your pro career. But that's when, uh decade later, that's when A.J. Galante and the Danbury Trashers, they acquire you from Roanoke in the middle of the 2005-06 season. And just want to remind everybody listening that you were at 76 points in 56 games when uh, A.J. traded for you.
0: Yeah, uh, that was a bad year. Uh, before uh, I went to Danbury, I was playing probably with the worst team in that league by far. And uh, when I signed with that team, that wasn't supposed to be that team on paper. Uh, our head coach, who, uh, our head coach uh, Rick Duno, that time uh, resigned. Probably three weeks before the training camp and he didn't oh, wow. even sign players. So um, so me I was one of the first players signed by Rick uh, that he, he was he, like because uh, I really really liked him. and he was supposed to be our head coach in, in Roanoke and, and after that we, we found a coach and uh, with no player. So we started to sign players from <laughs> anywhere. So our team was really bad and I had like tons of ice time so I could produce and I could play. But uh, I wasn't kind of really happy there because uh, I, um, I really enjoy winning too. And, I, and uh, in the past year, I was playing with winning teams. So when AJ uh, traded for me, I was really, really happy, especially when I know like which kind of team it was. The money was there. <laughs> like that was kind of uh, great. I'm going there.
1: Just sign me now. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's set the picture there a little bit for those who haven't seen the documentary. So the Danbury Trashers were a pro team formed in 2004 by James, aka Jimmy Galanti, who owned 25 trash disposal businesses in the northeast uh you know corridor of the united states it was worth over a 100 million dollars yeah he was worth uh, over that much it allegedly had ties to the mob i don't know what i can legally (laughs) i don't think it's that alleged (laughs) (laughs) i'm not saying anything i'm not supposed to (laughs) so galanti actually founded the uhl team which is roughly equivalent to an echl level in large part to give it to his 17-year-old son AJ to run. AJ had just uh, came off of a hockey end like a career-ending injury as well playing, you know, in in his life. And AJ goes on to create a highly successful, albeit highly violent team that combined tons of hockey skill and toughness with a bit of a you know at the, at the time it was the WWF, but now it's the WWE Flair for Entertainment, you know. And uh, he actually called the Trashers the evil empire. So, <laughs> right, right. And
2: so when Danbury adds you during that second season there, you know, AJ's called you his crown jewel. He said he really had to have you on his team. That's how, how good you were in that league. And the Trashers uh, were really an excellent team. They were definitely championship contenders and you've already mentioned that you were ha- really happy to be going to the evil empire <laughs> and so can you talk about just you mentioned also to that of course and this also mentioned a documentary how well jimmy galante treated his players so were these stories that you guys were already hearing you know i'm sure that these stories were circulating already around the league um this was the second year of the trashers just what kind of jimmy was doing up there
0: Jimmy was probably the best owner that I had in my all my pro career. Mm-hmm. He was kind of a, a big fan also because he wasn't a hockey guy. He was just like a owner, big fan, and he treated like his player like it was his sons. Like, um, but he was really demanding mm-hmm. for winnings, and I understand that the like how much money. He was putting into the, the, the team he was expecting big results and um and it was just like when denbury came into the league we were oh my that's gonna be a gong show <laughs> that's like putting a son 17 years old like he had like a forty thousand dollar earrings on each ears. <laughs> like he that was just like uh <laughs> Everybody thought it was a joke, but but with all the stories we heard, all how much money he was putting into the league and into his team and how good his team was, plus all the enforcers that he signed, they were they were bullied. Like they were like that was scary playing against them. Especially when you didn't have any tough guys in your team. I said, Oh my, that's gonna be a long game. And and <laughs> It was. I remember my first game against them. I scored three goals, and after that, I had an enforcer beside me every single shift. Every single shift. He was almost telling me, hey, "If you score one more, I'm gonna jump you." I said, "Are you serious?" <laughs> Didn't stop me, but I got myself in trouble like a couple times. And I had a great story about that, too. And um, three weeks before I got traded to Danbury, me and Paul Gillis, we had a long story. Like, uh, one year he was trying to get me, and I Mm -hmm. refused it. And since I refused it, he hated me. Mm -hmm. Hated me like uh, he really didn't like me. At all for three, four straight years. So and Paul Gillis is with uh, who? What? What team? Paul Gillis was the head coach of the Denbury Trashers. My second. Oh, year. oh I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, okay. And, yeah. yeah. Paul I, Gillis yeah. was the, the the head coach back then. Okay. So three weeks before I got traded, we played in Roanoke. The Trashers were up six two in the third period. They got a power play with a minute left in the game. My my coach sent me on the ice just to kill penalty, mm-hmm. and uh, the puck went uh, to my D man, and uh, I went straight to him, and I poke checked him, and I pushed him, but I touched him. I didn't even push him. I touched him. Mm-hmm. He threw himself into the boards on purpose just to start it like. Uh, Some shenanigans. So, what happened? Start some trouble. (laughs) I didn't do anything. So, all the trashers on the ice jumped on me, (laughs) and I was just trying to defend myself. So, so finally, I got out. The referee took me out of the game. So, I went out by the corner and I had to walk all behind the trashers' bench. Paul Gillis came out of the bench, ran to me, and he started. (laughs) to grab me and start to punch me. That's the head coach at a trash. It's not even make a documentary. So so I hit him back. I hit him back. And and the referees came off the ice. That was three weeks before I got traded. (laughs) (laughs) So after that, I said, oh, my, oh, what's going on? And we have three more games against them, like the next weekend. How it's going to be. And when I received that phone call, that was just funny. He said, oh, "Oh, what I'm gonna say, Paul? What Paul's gonna tell me?" I... Hey, <laughs> but he was happy to see me. He Said, "Now you're in my team. Let's go for <laughs> it." And uh, that was just like uh, that. Was just good time. But it's how that happens. Like it's uh, wow. Uh, it's kind of a, of a gung show. It was playing in Dansbury, in Danbury.
1: Yeah, it seems like something that they should not have omitted from that documentary. You know, you I know, can... I, I, and I
0: told, I told that. Story two in um mm. and, and two, like you uh, right away that you you call me aka one eye Willie. Mm-hmm. I never heard that nickname in my life. Netflix <laughs> made it just oh to, did they? We we're gonna ask yeah, you about that, yeah. Because <laughs> the real story, but supposedly it's when I was playing against the trasher. AJ was yelling at me, but he yelled after. Every good player from the other team, and I heard that he 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 yelled at me every game one eye willie and but I never heard it and I never never heard it until I watched that documentary so I have no idea
1: really okay AJ, <laughs> AJ must have been a big goonies fan or something or, or to give you that yeah but he's too young <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know
2: i uh, he's too he's young for he's
0: too young for a lot of stuff so. i know because goonies were what like it's a movie i think in 1992
2: 1993
0: actually yeah late late 80s actually so yeah but okay (laughs) so but but it's still still, yeah too young for him right classic so so, it's a classic yeah
1: yeah. (laughs) so you know in in the doc i think you said that jimmy doubled your roanoke salary he was uh famous for giving ten thousand dollar cash bonuses you know just because you know, given his players, you know, no-show jobs to supplement their salaries. Did you have any specific uh, no-show jobs or are you allowed to talk about those?
0: Mm, (laughs) Possible. (laughs) Possible. (laughs) Yeah, but the money, the money for players wasn't a problem in Danbury. Like that wasn't, that was ridiculous, like how much money like the team was uh, putting in for players and um and that's, that's why some some guys from the american hockey league left their team to play for the threshers to make money comes because it's not everyone like everyone knows that when you play in the american hockey league they design you for young players to keep the room like um uh, how the veterans Normal yeah veteran leadership Of the kids and a lot of veterans that like won't be called up again and and you know so and, and with the Thrashers they were making more money especially like uh in those leagues the team pay for your rents also so that was just like and and uh we had like a one pay for playing hockey the other pay was for promoting their hockey team so yeah can you say
2: uh 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 on- not what the no show is, so you can't say specifically what they were, but how many no show jobs did you have in your time in Danbury? Can you give us
0: a number? But no, I think all the players were uh, different. Me, I had one paid check for being a hockey player and another one to promote the hockey team, so right. but, uh, maybe some other players at the uh, different arrangement or something. Yeah. I have no idea. I never really asked about it. Like uh, <laughs> I took care of, uh I took care of myself and my contract <laughs> and that was good. And I okay. signed and I re-signed again for the, the year after, but Oh,
2: uh, okay. We're gonna ask the, you that. Yeah. The
0: team yeah, yeah, yeah I re signed a contract and um but the team uh, folded so
1: yeah. Y- you know you said Jimmy treated you like family. He treated all you guys like family like you were his son or at least an extension of, and I I have to assume, you know, based on that statement that you've never seen anything else like that in the minors.
0: Never. And we will never see something else like that either. Like that was just a one. Me, I think it was a privilege to be there because we got treated like we were NHLers and AJ You know, he wasn't a real, he was the president, but he was like our biggest fan. He was a great guy, but a biggest fan. He liked to hang out with players after the game and and stuff. And uh, one thing he didn't say, and that's really funny, it's uh, he was going on spring break when his dad told him, AJ, you're not going on spring break until you find me a goal scorer. <laughs> so he said, Come on, I have a flight. He said, No, he said, You, I, right now, today, I need a goal scorer. So AJ said, Okay. So he looked at this stat sheets. He saw that I was probably first in goals and my team wasn't going to make the playoffs. So he called my team. Okay. He called my team to start to make a trade. You won't believe who answered when he called. He called at the uh, merchandise store. He called the merchandise store to make a trade because that's, oh. that's the only phone number he found. Right, he so, didn't have any contacts. So, so he felt so stupid that he said he was a newspaper guy that he wanted to talk to the team GM. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is- he called the souvenir store to make a trade, so that's great. <laughs> and after that, like I think, when you reach uh, our owner or, or whatever, it just it uh, was just a question of money, I think, because um, Andy gave them a lot of money and three, four players, I believe, and uh, and I was on my way to Denver.
1: I feel like if I were to ask him, he would say the crown jewel is worth it you know, going through the merchandise store to get to the GM. <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't expect you to kind of kiss and tell, but is it safe to assume that it was the most money, you know, in Danbury playing for the Trashers, the most money you've made as a, as a pro hockey player?
0: Uh, yes. Yes, of course. Of yeah. course, because um, everything was kind of uh, under the table. So, but yeah, that was kind of, uh, for me, uh, it was like, a, a really like a dream contract for a minor
1: leagues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, I think you can the tell the us the truth
2: does. there, here. uh, yeah. The, I think the statute of limitations have expired on the taxes you live in Canada. So you can, you know, you're, you're, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no,
0: no. I got, uh, I got busted also. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all (laughs) the players were so I had to make a deal with the IRS, uh, to uh, taxes and stuff. So, Mm. okay,
2: okay. Well, let's let's (laughs) get to that in a little bit, but wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh, about Jimmy. Uh, you know, Jimmy himself is portrayed as an intimidating figure in a documentary. You know, did you ever feel intimidated by him yourself? And you know, is there a, a a favorite Jimmy story that maybe didn't appear in the Netflix documentary?
0: Like, uh, I'll be honest, he intimidated like all the players. <laughs> like we all we we all have uh, his respect, but he was a he was such a great guy. Like we we, we weren't scared of him. We mm-hmm. were just like intimidated just by by his uh, status and um, and. He was in our room very, very often. And, and when we were losing, like, um, he could yell at the head coach and we could hear him yelling at him. And he said, oh, come on. You know, like, uh, we lost 2-1. We had 52 shots against 13. Lost that game 2-1 because their <laughs> their goalie stood up on his head. And But him, the only thing he saw was the score. Two one and he and after he had the coach he, he he was kind of waiting uh in the hallway where all the players were getting by in the end for the exit and we were just looking down we didn't want to look at him at all because he <laughs> he, would, he couldn't make a comment but after that you know like uh no he, he was seriously such a great guy uh with us and uh like a great owner too like it's by far the best owner I had just cuz he he treated us so well.
1: How about uh how about AJ you told us a little uh, insider there about spring break and you also told us he liked to hang out with you guys after the game you have a uh, you got a favorite AJ story that maybe was uh, left out. Um no I think that was pretty much uh I just remember
0: like that kid in his uh, suites like, uh, at the rink, he was yelling and he was wearing all the time a basketball shirt with his jeans uh, <laughs> under his butt and uh, <laughs> in his hat like that and with, with his earrings. And I said, oh my gosh. I like, mean, he was yelling at players and just in the documentary when he filmed that uh, D-Man who hurt, who hurt uh, John Mirasti with a cell phone and he took it. <laughs> It's it's all, oh, yeah, camcorder. Yeah, yeah. it's all things that you will never see again. And, yeah. uh, but no, he was in our room talking to everyone. Uh, he was just a kid and he was just our, our biggest fan. He was just happy to be with us. And it was great. You know, everything was great.
2: <laughs> a big part of the doc is also how the trashers would mess with visiting teams. Uh, You know, they would put Crisco on their own jerseys so opposing players couldn't grab hold of them during fights. Or they would hide the other goalies' uh, pads. And, of course, you were with Port Huron and uh, Roanoke against the Trashers. So do you remember how they messed with your teams when you were playing against them?
0: No, I think we were in it. We weren't good enough to make that (laughs) kind of stupid stuff. So, uh, (laughs) You weren't Adirondike. No, no. Like uh, in the documentary, it it was the first time I learned that kind of stuff. Uh, I never experienced anything when I played against them. But hey, everything's possible with them, especially (laughs) against uh, other good teams. But no, (laughs) nothing really surprised me.
1: (laughs) <laughs> so how about the infamous Danbury uh fans in section 102? Do you have any fond memories of them, be it as a as a visiting player or playing for the Trashers?
0: Craziest section
1: ever in all sports. They were crazy, they
0: were so mean. <laughs> they were <laughs> like the when we played against them they were like low class fans they, they could say whatever they wanted that I remember one one time one of our players when I played for Roanoke he had a high stick in the first period and he had like um, in the third period he had like a uh, dry blood on his uh, on his cheek and uh, one of the fans before the player he called his name and he said hey, what you have on your cheek? I hope it's cancer.
1: You know, <laughs> <who
0: said that? laughs> you know who said that? Like, it's not even it's it's something that you, it's blood on the face. It's <laughs> no, no, but it's and um, it's one of the story that I can tell because other stories in 2021 I just cannot say it yeah it it just (laughs) i can guess sometime that you say oh how bad it was and it's just a story and i probably i forgot tons of them but when i played against uh i played for them it was it was more funny than but yeah they were rude they were really (laughs) really really rude
2: Wow. And uh, you know, just for yourself, uh, you were as advertised in Danbury. You scored 23 points in 18 playoff games, and you know, you guys lose in the final. And you already said that you were going to come back the next year, but of course, uh, that season didn't happen because you know, all this while the FBI was investigating Jimmy. You know, were you suspicious at all about anything going around, Jimmy, before things ended? Or like you said earlier, were, were you just like, hey, I'm being treated better than I've ever been. This guy is, is good to me. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to go and enjoy and play some hockey.
0: No, like uh, everyone knew uh, what's going on because when the playoffs started, we knew that the FBI were coming to our games and taking uh, pictures who was coming in and out from his uh is skybox uh why we knew it because he made the front page of the denbury journal or the connect he made the front page and uh one morning before practice he showed up in our dressing room with that paper and he said hey guys (laughs) he won't get me i'm famous i'm famous don't (laughs) worry he won't get me so so he just said yeah some FBI guys is on our game taking picture in and out but uh, they won't it so so we knew that something big was there but but uh, for which case we have no idea and mm-hmm. no one asked <laughs> no 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 just <laughs> and no one asked questions we just uh, kept ourselves playing hockey and uh, that's it
2: you mentioned uh you and other players eventually had to uh, cut a deal with the the IRS. Uh, did the FBI ever try to talk to you?
0: No, not me. Uh, the FBI never tried to uh, get me. Uh, the only thing the IRS, when they called me, they said that the FBI took all the files, all the papers and stuff, and they saw how much money uh, I received and stuff, and they said, "Look, uh, you you." You owe us uh, that much money. If you pay in the next two three weeks, uh, pay us that much money, and it was a big difference. So, so I just paid them right away.
2: I, I have I have to ask, you know, again, you know, you may not want to kiss and tell, but hey, you've already paid the IRS. So, did you make six figures when you were in Danbury?
0: Uh, I didn't make six figures because I played only uh, three and a half months there.
2: Okay, but you would have you would've if you played uh, next year for sure, right? That's a lot for a minor okay. league player.
0: Yeah, oh, I'd say. And especially like it was almost cash. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, so so that's the it was the most interesting thing.
1: <laughs> so uh what do you have like a a crazy out of the box wild story that maybe didn't make the documentary that you may have told them that they, they didn't go or is there something that you've been holding out on us this whole time? Um, did I, no, I think the, the,
0: no, I, I don't. Oh, <laughs> I have probably won my first day when I show up at the, okay. Cause, uh, when I got traded, Jim mm-hmm. Galante told me when you come to Danbury, come directly to my, uh, trash can office, <laughs> and I'll meet you uh, I'll meet you there. I said, perfect. Yeah. So I go there. I went to the front office. So I asked the secretary, where was Jimmy? So she looked at her sheet, she said, oh, he's in door four, outside. Go outside, go to door four. So I go to door four. I knock, and, so, and I open it. It was a very, very, very loud. It was probably the loudest room out there just because they were making i think reparation on trucks or something but that was really loud and uh, i saw jimmy who was surrounded by four big guys <laughs> so uh, so so when i opened the do- the door and i started walking yeah, two of the big guys in a circle turned around and started walking <laughs> <laughs> through me like very fast to me I said, hey! I'm just a hockey player. I'm the new hockey player. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy came. He said, "It's all right, guys. It's all right. Welcome to Denver." He said, "I'm very busy at the moment, but I'll meet you at the rink uh, after practice." So I said, "Okay, okay. I'll see you there. Thank you." <laughs> really set the but tone. It was uh, it was kind of oh my god, like what? <laughs> what I'm getting into now? But like everything was great. And other stories, really quick. No, like our dressing room. Like our dressing room was a uh, a dressing room like nhl our uh, our home rink wasn't that nice i know we put a lot of money into it to make a building for a professional hockey league but uh, but it was just like seats like benches like middle benches like uh uh but our dressing room was crazy crazy nice that was and we had everything we had like a entertaining entertainment room with uh, PlayStations and uh, a big screen TV. We had, uh, we had food every single day after games. And uh, no, that was, uh, that was, we had like a, um, a room for a, a big gym also where our dressing room was. And uh, no, that was just a, a privilege uh, playing for them.
2: And sometimes you had envelopes of cash waiting for you in the locker room
0: <laughs> after a big win. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> and I remember when we won the semifinal. Like they wanted to make rings for us, and all the <laughs> players said, "No, we don't want rings for winning the semifinal." He said, "Yeah, we'll, we'll make another one for the finals." And I know, put, put the money that you wanted to put for the semifinal and put in one.
2: So, uh... well, uh, David, uh, uh, we're almost at at the end time here. We've been talking for a while. Really appreciate your time here. But uh, one thing I did want to ask you is uh, you uh, mentioned uh, before we uh, started recording that. You know, maybe the Netflix documentary might have missed just how good a team you guys had. You know, not only could the Danbury Trashers beat you up on the ice, but they could beat you on the ice with pure, pure skill, uh, guys like you. And so just in general, just uh, obviously you watched the documentary. Um, what did the, the, the documentary, and it was highly entertaining, we all loved it, but what did it kind of maybe miss or maybe not tell enough of the story of, in your opinion?
0: yeah when I watched it, like um Netflix made the team like it was a goon team, right Like we didn't see any goals. We didn't see how good we were as a team. Uh, they, they put it like uh, it was a really like uh enforcers team, a team that fights every single games, but that wasn't the case. Every single game, we dressed ten forwards. We had three really, really good offensive lines. And sometime we dressed an enforcer. And we had sometime like two enforcers as a defense, But we could really, really play hockey. And uh, one, one day, the Hockey News uh, wrote a story about, uh, about that team. And he said that our team could beat at least 12 teams in the American Hockey League. It's how good we were for uh, um, minor leagues. Right. And uh, and when like anybody who doesn't know that and watch the documentary, it looks like I'm kind of the only good offensive player with a bunch <laughs> gotcha. of tough guys. But uh, that wasn't the case. Like all the tough guys, we were tough when we dressed. Like we had the options. To dress a lot of tough guys, yes, yeah, because they were on our roster. But if you look the sheets, like Steven Pete played only seven games. Uh, we had uh, tons of tough guys who show up with the team. They probably were there for maybe two weeks. Some played longer, but uh, and in seventy six game season, we probably had like uh, fifty games without fight, if it's not more. So we 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 had like great great hockey team uh for minor leagues and that wasn't what we saw uh on netflix
2: Mm. and sort of our, our last question here then aj himself has said that your life could be a documentary and what why do you, why would he say that? And we've learned a lot about your remarkable story, so we can kind of guess. But you know, what would the David Alexander Beauregard story be?
0: Uh, do you know what? Like, uh, lots of people. is telling me like uh, how all amazing my my hockey career is. Uh, that I played with only one eye, and um, but maybe in the future i will probably realize it more it's because cuz i did it that i don't really see it i know you know i'm very very happy that it works cuz i think my biggest satisfaction or my my best action in all my career it was i tried to play hockey again i didn't want to be older and say maybe i should have tried so my best accomplishment was to try play hockey again because it could be a coin toss it could be i try and didn't work and and but i put a lot of efforts in it and uh, i put a lot a, a lot a lot of efforts mm-hmm. and to be uh, i wasn't expecting to be as good I just wanted to try to play as long as I can. And I was focusing a lot to be a great goal scorer again because mm-hmm. it was my passion and I love scoring goals. And I did. Like, you know what? I feel uh, privileged that it works. Like I said, because I'm not um, different than anyone. I just put lot uh, of efforts. Of work and I, I and I really stay positive and uh, it's maybe a story that who uh, can help a lot of of person with uh, bad incident, bad injuries and stuff because uh, you never know, you know, you, you, you never know what could happen if you try and um, and I'm very blessed that it, it works.
2: That's uh, incredible, David. I uh, just wanted to ask you uh, uh, to close out. Uh, what are you up to now? Uh, I've read that um, uh, you're uh, a, a successful poker player. Uh, you do slow-pitch softball. Uh, I also see that you're uh, in beer distribution. I saw a picture of you on Facebook with a, a lot of white claws. <laughs> so just uh, let us know what's, uh, what's going on with your life now.
0: Yeah, it's been three years now. Uh, I'm a beer rep. Uh, for the Sleeman company uh, it's a Canadian uh, company but we have uh, we sell all the white claw who's a re- right now it's a monster Hot. here <laughs> we have all the Guinness uh, Irish beer we have like the Guinness uh, we have Carlsberg we have all smear enough also so we have a lot of, like we have a lot a lot of products so I'm just a rep in all the big store, like uh, grocery stores. And uh, on my weekends, I played ball because I'm a big, like, uh, slow pitch guy in tournaments. Also, I have, I'm have i in two leagues also. Uh, and I play in some beer leagues in the winter. And, yes, I play poker. It's a passion, too. <laughs> I'm doing yeah, well. That-
2: Ask you too. Uh, uh, are are you a bigger celebrity now at the at the stores where you're distributing now? I mean, everybody knows you're ready, but are you now like with the Netflix documentary? Everyone's like, wait, I saw you. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yesterday,
0: I, uh, yeah. Most of the person here, uh, especially in Quebec, knows me by like all the older right person heard my story in the past and the so it's always easier to have a connection with them and and and, and talk hockey and after we talk about beers but uh, yeah <laughs> with that documentary like uh, a lot of people uh come to me and say hey like great uh great show and stuff so uh, yeah it's funny no. but i have to tell everyone that wasn't the type of hockey that I, I was there. <laughs> Don't think 500 goals It wasn't like, uh it wasn't like uh senior league here around me here. Cause here we have a league. It's a senior league. All the tough guys. Is in that league. Brad Wingfield right. played in that league also, but all the tough, tough guys like Patrick Cote, uh, John Mirasti, mm-hmm. uh, all the tough guys mm-hmm. played in that league. And it's them who made the most, more money than offensive
1: players. <laughs> uh, thank you again, David. I honestly, it's been a blast. We could, like Shane said earlier, we could sit here and talk all day. And you know, it's just, uh, it's great having that perspective that you've kind of shown us, you know, you can kind of take it as one way or the other and how you attacked what had happened to you with such aggressive aggression to continue your, your hockey career. You know, there's a lot of people believe in destiny or all things happen for a reason and, you know, you maybe not have would have been able to have those experiences with the Galanti family or in Danbury and, you know, be where you're at now. So honestly, I just want to say thank you again for sitting down with us. Um, I'm, I'm I'm just honestly so stoked. I know this has been going on, or our interview has been going on for like over an hour now, but it's just been a blast having you on here. And uh, I hope we can keep in touch with you later on and maybe circle back and talk with you a little bit more later on. But I uh, just wanted to say thank you for joining us on the pod today.
0: It was a pleasure. Uh, it was very fun. And before uh, I who who said that everything happened for a reason. And what people don't know, it's I never lost a tooth or I never received an eye stick on my chin and my face. But one year before my accident year, I received the same, same accident in the same eye. You know, it's really like a bad luck receive one time a high stick on the visor. Me, that happened, me twice. And the first year, I received a stitch right in the corner of my eye Uh, I missed one month because my cornea was scratches at three places by a blade and and and, uh, a doc told me you were really really lucky because he said I never saw that that close and one year after that the same thing happened And and it's a what's the chance like me it was a me that happened in 1994 and we in the hall hockey. I don't even know how many times a guy lost one eye. We never, but mm-hmm. it, it was a really bad luck, and, and that happened to me twice in the
1: in kind of the same year. So like lightning you, striking twice it's there, David. It's very weird. Well, well, thanks again for joining us, Dave. Again, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll let you get back to your beautiful Saturday morning over there in Montreal. I'll let you take advantage of the beautiful weather because. You know, we're approaching September and October, so the weather's not going to be so nice for so long. So <laughs> I'll let you get back to your weekend, and thanks again for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you, David. It was, it was fun. Thank you. Big Dan Danbury Trashers level shout-out to David Alexander Beauregard for, you know, taking time out of his day to sit down and have a lengthy yet just quality, quality conversation with us. About his career, about his playing time in Danbury, a couple of little fun tidbits in there about things that we didn't know that uh, or that we didn't learn in the documentary, or that they may have left out. Um, but again, huge thank you to David for sitting down with us. Uh, I, I hopefully hopefully we can get him on for some more some more episodes, some more fun hockey talk because honestly, he was just amazing to sit down and talk to. Hence the length of this episode and the length of this interview. Uh, but folks, I think that's pretty much going to do it for us uh, for today. Again, make sure you look out for this week's later episode. We're going to start covering the beginning of training camp for the Sharks, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Also, head over to SanJoseHockeyNow.com and subscribe if you haven't, because uh, hockey season's getting started, so you know the prime content and all the juicy stuff that you want to know. Training camp battles, insider information, and sport logic stats can all be found on SanJoseHockeyNow.com. You can follow the podcast at SJHockeyNowPod. You can follow the network at HockeyPodNet. And you can follow myself at NickFloor underscore. And for Shang, you can follow him if you haven't already for some reason at Shang underscore Pang. We appreciate it, folks. Stay tuned for uh, another episode coming out this week. You guys all stay safe and stay hydrated.